Hey everyone, my name is Bill Kennedy and this is the Arden Labs podcast where we get to have an intimate conversation with different people in the uh, tech community. Probably mostly the Go community, but I, I'm not, we're not going to isolate ourselves to so just Go. It could be Kubernetes, it could be anything related to the tech that's happening today. And who we have today is a, a really special guest for me, uh, a friend of mine I've known for, I don't know, almost a half a decade now, Andy? Andy Walker. Yeah, since the first GopherCon. Yeah, so Andy's been a gopher f- almost yeah, since the first GopherCon, which was what, 15, 14, 14, 15, I think. I think the intro slide that I use, I think I say I've been using it since like R60, so like just before 1.0. Wow, so I didn't start with Go until 1.2, which was like May of 2013 or something like that. Actually, this is super cool. All right, so how did you even know that Go existed. Like, I think we all have that Go story. So what's your story, especially since it was pre-1? Oh, man. To be honest, I think it was one of my coworkers. There's this this one coworker that I had that I really respected who was like me. You know, there's different kinds of priorities for engineers. You know, uh, some people, it's really kind of a means to an end or they kind of drill down on like one particular language or specialty. Whereas I was, I've always been kind of like a language nerd. I think there's this kind of generalized disquiet in me that I'm, I'm never quite doing things in the most elegant way, which of course is like silly, but like I was always interested in like new languages. Um, I remember being into something called IO around then and he and I would always talk about like Lisp and, and Scheme and, and Forth and all these other kind of esoteric languages. And I think it was, I think it was him that like first mentioned, you know, Hey, you know, that, uh, you know, they're working on the, so like the plan nine guys are working on like a, like a new language. You should check it out. Wow. What's fascinating to me is I spent really 20 years or a little bit more up until basically from like say early nineties to 2013 working on Microsoft tech. I was kind of really in that bubble, right? I mean, there's a bubble there that you don't really see on the outside. And so the, the, even the notion of something called Plan 9 existing wasn't even on my radar screen, probably until 15, right? And here you are, we got to be talking, what, 2011, maybe? Yeah, somewhere around then. I mean, like, I'll show my ignorance by not having it in front of me like I probably should have. <laughs> so one of the questions I love asking people when I meet is really like, how old were you and generalizing a little bit, but like how old were you when you were really starting to write your first programs? I don't even care what the program did, but like how young were you when you got introduced to this? Eight years old. I remember we had an old, I think it was a 286. I don't think it was like an 8086. It was, I think it was a 286 beige box kind of PC clone thing. And we bought it from these people that we knew that had like their like little mom and pop computer supply business. And I remember pretty vivid. So like one of the first things that I ever wrote was a series of menus that used like these, this ANSI art that I had like converted into com files with this program that I had found colorful, like figlet fonts and like, you know, different colors and, and stuff for different menus. And you'd hit one key and it was like a batch script that kind of like linked them all together that was like one of the first things, like pieces of 
code, if you want to call it that, that I ever wrote. As with a lot of engineering, learning experiences typically come from mistakes and pain. And I, I, I have a pretty vivid memory of like, you know, doing the the DOS, the MS-DOS equivalent of like RM-RF by accident and deleting a bunch of stuff and having to restore it from like a collection of floppies and feeling like really, really upset and scared that I had like deleted all this stuff that was so important to my family when in actuality, I was mostly the one using it anyway. <laughs> That's an interesting story because when I got my first DOS machine, which was a K-Pro, and I have to imagine I was in early high school, I think. I remember getting the machine. I was working on a CPM machine up until then. And I was like, Ma, I need, I want this new computer. I want this new computer. And it's expensive back then. I think she spent like $1,500. We, we didn't have that kind of money. I still, to this day, don't know how she bought this computer for me. And I remember getting it home. And I remember the same exact story. I deleted some files off the root and the machine stopped booting. And dude, I panicked. And I spent, I don't know how many hours getting that machine back up and running. And it was maybe the best experience you could have because you, you, you understood the inner workings of, at least from the DOS side and the hard drive, the boot cycle, right? To say that I wasn't panicking because I thought I broke this thing after my mom spent so much money on it, yeah. And, you know, this is certainly not something that you grow out of either. I mean, I was telling you before we started recording, right? Like I bought this this new, like, reproduction Model F that I've been kind of a keyboard that I've been drooling over for a while. And like one of the first things I did after I verified that it worked, I was like, well, clearly these key maps are not good enough. And so like I went to go, <laughs> I went to go replace them and I didn't read the manual that says, by the way, we set up a key binding for you that'll put it into a mode where you can flash it. And instead I found like this Google doc somewhere that was like, well, you need to short the contacts on the board to put it into. Anyway, long story short, I, um, <laughs> I ended up ripping the USB-C header right off of the board, ruining it forever. And I was up until like three in the morning because I had had at least the foresight to order another board, like solder, desoldering a ribbon cable and soldering it back on. So now I know like the inner workings of this thing really well, but like it was a clenching sort of <laughs> situation. You know it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the idea of taking out a soldering gun is on my list of anything to do right now, fixing things. But I, I love when I hear that story. So you're eight years old. I'm assuming this was our DOS-based machine too, and you're 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 banging away at that. And then I imagine that you're you're still doing that through high school. Like my high school just barely had programming classes back in the mid '80s. Yeah, I was also kind of um, a BBS kid too, and I and this one friend of mine in like you know '90s Charleston, West Virginia. We definitely got into it and had some fun. Andy's hiding stuff from me right now. He's like, I don't know what I can actually say or not because the feds are still looking for me. That's why I'm wearing a mustache. <laughs> it's, mostly, it's mostly pretty like <laughs> low key stuff. I mean, I remember they like threw this friend of like, I, you know, I built, you know, like every like young nerd kid, freaker kid in that time. I built like a blue box and like a red box and a green box and very different colors of boxes that claimed to do all this different stuff and very few ways actually worked. But yeah, and like I was on the BBS, I was on the BBS scene for a while, but there was, there was a lull, I think, between like when I first got started and I think I was mostly just kind of a computer nerd for a while. Like unlike some of the, some people I know that got started in early age, like who had like engineering parents or whatever, like I did some 
kind of tooling around when I was that young. But then for the most part, I was just like really into computers, but not like what I would say as a programmer. I do remember having a little bit of doing a little bit of programming in junior high, kind of basic stuff. But once I got to high school, there was there were some classes in it. And we were I think we were using Tur- uh, Borland Turbo Pascal. And so Pascal was Pascal Pascal was probably my first language. But I remember um, I, I wish I could tell you where I got it. And I, I, I would pay good money to be able to dig some of this stuff up. But like they would do like assignments and it would, it would be like the, you know, guess the number game or like the um, text based kind of poker game. But I had gone like on the BBS and the dial up and like gotten these like assembly subroutines that would let me put it into like VGA mode and like play mod music that I had like <laughs> packaged into it. So like it's like, OK, well, well, you know, let's see your game, Andy. And it would just be like and like, you know, like the the <laughs> oh, that's 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 nice. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you so, do that? that's when I think I really got started. And then another bit of a break, actually, uh, because I initially went to college to be like a biologist. But after like my first semester, I was just like, now we're we're doing computer science. Wow. So even though you're hacking on computers from that early age, it wasn't really in your head a career. So that's interesting. So just back up one, why biology? What did you What did you think you were going to do with that? Go hit the open seas or? No, that's a, that's a really good question. So I as very much as very much a victim of like my culture, I guess at that time, uh, you know, scientists at least from as far as I was concerned were kind of like the balls, right? Like that was the tippy top of society was to get like a PhD and be like a scientific expert in something. And I didn't know really a lot about really computer science as a discipline at all. So, you know, I thought at that time that being a programmer meant just kind of like slowly dying in a suit while, you know, you do Excel forever in like a, in like a dark building, right? Some Dilbert style hellscape. And so I had read like the hot zone and I was really into viruses and stuff. And I wanted to go to school to be like a virologist, which, you know, ironically, in some ways I kind of am <laughs> today, but in just the different sort. It's funny because like I actually did run into a high school classmate who did become a virologist and he was like, man, I really wish I'd have gotten into computers. <laughs> That's funny. So you had this dream, I guess, to, or you felt like it was important for you to have a PhD. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to take that course. You're moving in that direction. You do a year at university and you're like, you know, I'm not really interested in this stuff. After a semester, you're just like basic biology 101. You're like, yeah, this isn't cutting it for me. This is this is not what I wanted. Or were there other influences other than the class material after semester? I'm assuming you went away to school, which is a whole nother experience there. So what happens in that semester? Is it literally the teacher? Is it literally the coursework? Or do you just kind of get back to the computer somehow? Yeah, actually, it, I mean, I would love to say that I had some kind of like awakening of my inner programmer, but it was actually one particular teacher who pretty much like destroyed my love or burgeoning love for laboratory science, you know, single-handedly, you know, I, I was probably not ready for school anyway. 
And then, you know, his classes were early in the morning and I'm sure he really didn't know <laughs> what to do with me. Uh, the classes were all pretty small too. So like anytime, like I fell asleep or something like it was like bl- blaringly obvious, but like he really strongly emphasized like artistic ability for some reason. So like being able to like accurately convey what you saw in the slides and you know, that was not my song, my strong suit at all. And you know, I just didn't do well. I didn't have a good time. You know, I had done really well on my like AP test. So they told me, well, you can skip freshman zoology or you can skip freshman botany. And I took the nerdy option, which was, well, I was like, well, you know, I mean, like it was mostly zoology and AP biology. So I guess I'll take botany. And that ended up being a mistake. And then one of my best friends there, he was doing a computer science degree. And I was like, well, you know, I know that stuff, sort of. I'll just do that. Nice. All right. So, you know, I feel like I'm one of these kids where I was on the, at least in New York at the time, on the fence on whether you could, I was born in October, right? So now if you're not born by September, you can't start that school year, right? You got to wait an entire year. But at least back in the 70s, your parents could say, no, you could start even if you're born. So I'm one of those kids, right? So I was always- So they started you early? Yeah. I'm already only- For me, but they started me late. They started you late. So they started me early. And I always felt that was a disadvantage. One, I was only about five foot tall, even as a senior, you know, like I didn't even grow until I was like my senior year. So I was always the smallest. And I always felt like I was just not as mature as everybody else at the time. And I think it's that maturity that I lacked throughout high school and even in university that just really, I didn't like school. I, and I feel like I'm, I'm a much different person now, but I feel like there is this moment where maybe you're just too immature for your age and where you're at, where education's tough. There are a couple of things that I would like to call out. One, you know, I don't mean to say that like programming, one was not the right decision for me. Like it, to- like, it totally was, but it wasn't like a kind of an epiphany. Like I, I, once I started, I was like, oh, this is definitely what I should be doing. But the other thing I wanted to say is it's like, I think the most valuable things that I got from my academic education, like I were really just exposure to the idea that programming could be beautiful, that it could be an expressive, creative exercise, that there were all sorts of different ways to do it, that there was all sorts of weird like things that you could do with that. That was not something that was part of the cultural awareness when I was coming up. Like, like I said, like I thought to be a programmer meant dying in a Dilbert hellscape, right? I think now things are kind of different in that like there's a lot of awareness of this discipline in general and like all the different fun kind of things you can do with it. And like more younger people are interested in it. But like I often tell people like the, some of the most like valuable stuff that I learned, like practical, technical stuff, I absolutely learned after school, like on the job, like I'd say most of it. And I think that's going to be everybody for the most part, maybe unless you go maybe more academic. But, you know, that brings up something interesting, because when I think about my computer science degree, which again is like late 80s, graduated in 91. Obviously, there's no tech that I was doing in the late 80s or like that 90s that really exists today, right? So I always say that what I got out of my degree was the ability to solve problems, to know how to tackle a problem 
financers. We didn't have the internet back then, right? Uh, we were scrapping on like those bulletin boards, like you're saying, or whatever documentation you had. But I think the problem solving is really what I learned from university that carried over because tech is changing all of the time. And if you don't know how to attack the new problem or the new tech, then that's where I think, to me, there's a line in the sand of when is somebody a senior engineer? And there's lots of answers to that. But I think one of them is knowing when you don't know something and then knowing how to find the answer and knowing how to ask the right question, right? Like that takes that time. So I think my university degree helped me with that. And I think that's where, other than the entire experience, but we're just talking about the degree itself. And I kind of hear that coming from you as well. Right. I mean, I think I'm glad I was exposed to what I was exposed to because a lot of the time it's kind of like this this echo that reminds me of a direction that I maybe should or should not be going in. Like recently I was writing like a little query language and some little thing in the back of my mind was like, you should use like, yeah, you should look into using a, you know, peg, a PG for this, like a peg grammar. And I'm like, Oh yeah, let's see if goes got one. And, you know, I start to write it and I get a first kind of draft of my grammar together and it's just garbage. It's so bad, like getting to what I need. And then, Something in my head is like, aren't you supposed to structure rules in like this way where they're kind of like descending and they build off each other? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I should probably. And then, you know, I restructure it a little bit and pull out some old books and, you know, of course, Stack Overflow, right? You know, so that that kind of stuff, that kind of like little those little hints of things. But like I wasn't the best student and I, you know. I try to avoid falling into the the whole trap of like, oh, if I was just a better student, how far ahead, how much better would I be today? And it's like, whatever. You get what you get out of it. Should people go after that computer science degree? Is there value in that today? And if not, then what level of education should you be going after to be able to get that job? Because I, I'm torn here. I'm oh, torn. I, I really am. Because I, uh, you also have to preface any answer you might make to that question with the knowledge that like it's not the same world today and the emphasis are not is not the same right like so even when i was getting my degree towards the end of it they were starting to push like like because we started with like doing you know c c++ um you know some assembly like x86 and spark assembly here and there but by the end of my term at school, they were starting to switch over to Java because of the belief that that was the marketable thing to do. And of course, like I get out of school and, you know, I don't even have a, you know, I graduated 2002, not exactly the best time, but like my first job ended up being like, actually was ended up being a volunteer position and I was doing like PHP and stuff and like I'd never used it. So yeah, I, I, sorry, that's a bit of a digression, but I guess what I'm saying is like, it's a different world now. And, you know, I see some of these students coming out and their grasp of a lot of stuff is like really impressive to me. But at the same time, I don't know how their education is, like whether or not they felt the kind of same wonderment at this obscure, <laughs> weird little discipline and these like strange, unusual people like making free operating systems and obscure kind of programming languages and editors. Like, I don't know if that is a thing anymore, but whether or not I would say somebody should get the education that I got, I would say absolutely. 
but that's just because what I got was, I don't know. It was also kind of weird. Like I, I was at what was probably the only all female computer science faculty college in certainly in the U S at that time by virtue of, you know, how small it was. And I really valued that experience. But again, like any similar experience today might cost like a whole lot more than it cost me. So it's tough to say. And I see some stuff that's kind of in the middle that seems really compelling. Like a, like Recurse Center is one. Like I don't know from Adam about code boot camps, right? Like I'm I'm sure they that some of them are quite valuable. I just don't I don't know that space at all. But I can tell you that like Recurse, which seems to be kind of different, it's almost more like a a monastery or a hermitage or something. <laughs> I don't know. What. No, the the Recurse model is more of a self study kind of model. You know, it's a self-study, it's a self-pace, you get that year, and you have access to a lot of people. The people that I've met that did Recurse, like, they're on their game, and they're really, you know, sharp, and, and they're good at it. And I, so, so clearly something about what they're doing there works really well, and it's, you know, you don't even really pay for it, right? No, other than you have to still find a way to pay your bills every month, right? But it's definitely cheaper than college. Which really, to me, then begs the question, at least I went to university back in the late 80s because that's what you did. And I was super interested in, I knew what I wanted to do immediately. I knew what I wanted to study. But I went with the idea that I was going to have a job at the end of that. It took me nine months to get a job back in 19, basically 1992. And I had to take a job for $18,000 a year because there was nothing. So... I think maybe it also has to do with what is your goal? Is your goal to get the PhD kind of education or is your goal to get a job? And if your goal is to just get a job today, then I think it's, well, where do you want to have that job? If, if you're looking to do more front end type of work, I think the boot camps, that's where they're shining with HTML and CSS and Ruby. And I think there you, you could do a three month stint and have enough to potentially get somebody to hire you, right? If you're looking to do the kind of work that we do, which I, I want to transition into in a second here, the boot camp isn't going to get you there. And what's interesting is, you know, we're hiring developers all the time. I need developers. I've got a lot of projects. I need developers. But every one of my clients wants somebody with a year of actual work experience. They're not asking for computer science degrees. They're not asking for education. They want one year at least of real world practical experience that the person can communicate during an interview. And I think that's the gap we have right now, right there. Well, that certainly has not changed. Uh, that certainly was no, no different, I should say, in, when I graduated in 2002. And there was an interesting kind of gap in understanding there. So like, you know, I deliberately, both my sophomore and junior years was like, yeah, so I ended up working for like the computer center at the school, which is, you know, good enough, I guess, mostly IT stuff. But like I, I tried for internships and I remember like the career services office being like, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're going to be a programmer. You're not going to have any, you know, trouble finding a job. But like, I guess, was it like the second or first tech bubble collapse or whatever? I don't like, but right around then. So I graduate and I remember as I'm, you know, kind of in the final home stretch before graduation, looking at job postings. And there was something that wanted like 10 years of HTML experience, which at the time would have meant like 
almost that you helped design it. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember getting out of college and, and be like, all right, you know, world, here I am. And it's just cricket sounds. Right. And what I ended up doing to solve that was volunteered. Right. I went to the AmeriCorps found a way to, you know, get into an AmeriCorps project that involved some level of programming. And that's what I did, because you don't have to put volunteer on your resume, you just have to put what your job was. No, and when I'm working on resumes, especially with people that are just coming out of school, I really try to focus on all the extra projects and things they did and try to showcase that as experience. Because it is experience. But it's one of the mistakes people make on a resume. It's a, that's a different day to talk about. But you got to somehow show you have experience to get the interview. And then in the interview, you've got to show that they, it's, it's a tough, tough, tough. But in the same role, but kind of talk about what you're doing now, because I think it's really interesting where your career ended up, right? At least from what I know about you for the last 10 years, you've been in this kind of very specialized space. I know there's a lot of proprietary stuff here, but I think it's an interesting space. So, Maybe you can just kind of share again with everybody a little bit, because you talked about the virus, right? You ended up in biology anyway, one way or another, right? So this is the second job you have in that space, right? Yeah. So just spend like five minutes maybe trying to share the space that you're in, because I think it's interesting. And other people might be interested. And then kind of how you got into that space and then kind of where you are now with that. I have actually made the transition into the kind of the role that I'm in now twice in my career. It's certainly not as, it's interesting the pattern that it's followed. So the, the role that I'm in now is as like an, part of an engineering team in support of a research effort, specifically in cybersecurity. Typically, these cybersecurity companies, they will have different teams with different responsibilities. You know, one team might be just much more focused on an engineering effort, like a standard engineering F product effort, like designing, say, you know, the fundamentals of your endpoint in endpoint software or your, you know, your detection software or your ingestion pipeline. And then a lot of them will also have like an intelligence department, which is made up of like experts in either like reverse in like re anything from like reverse engineering to geopolitics to. So uh, I'm going to interrupt you. So maybe back up a little bit, right? When we talk about cyber security, what you're doing is constantly raking. I don't know what the best word is uh, ripping through data to see if there's what viruses or malicious code or data. Like, like at the highest level, You've got streams of data that you're processing looking for something that's bad, right? Is, is that the idea? That is one of the things that my company does like more broadly. And the like original job that I had here was working on that side of the house on the ingestion pipeline. But like I've, I've kind of transitioned now more into like a research support role. That's, it's interesting because this is the second time I've done this, right? When I started at my, my last company, which is another cybersecurity vendor, called uh, uh, Sourcefire. We got eventually got acquired by Cisco. I started as an engineer just doing work on kind of the underpinnings of the way that like the appliances worked, right? And all, all that was in Perl, just very, you know, standard engineering effort stuff. And then 
gradually kind of got befriended by and folded into the like, you know, <laughs> social misfit hacker groups, the hacker group. Uh, and they, you know, at one point were like, we like you. And uh, we would like to have somebody more focused on engineering for us because either like they're very good technical workers, but like like software engineering and, you know, designing solutions and applications and stuff like that. That's that's not what they do. And they needed somebody to like take some of their, you know, ideas and gaps that they needed filled and address them with like a more kind of traditional engineering approach. And so that's what I ended up doing there. And that's kind of the transition that I ended up making here too. See, now this is interesting, right? Because there may be people listening that are like, well, I'd like to get into cybersecurity. Like, like what I want to focus on is not your technical, the technical aspect. Because I think if you're interested enough, you can learn the technical side of things. You can get help on the tech side. It sounds to me, and I can attest this as well to where I am in my career today, that it's really the people skills that kind of got you where you are. So the question I want to ask is, you have the people skills, right? And I want to focus on that a little bit, but you also had the interest in the space too, right? So what was it about the space, the cybersecurity that you thought was super interesting? I'm going to tell a little story here by way of a confession. And that confession is that despite the fact that I was, like I mentioned, kind of like, you know, poking around on the edges and and maybe even being a little naughty with technology as a younger man, like I was not, you know, and it may be because there was no like dedicated cybersecurity path that I never thought about doing that like as a job. Like I knew I liked war games and that was pretty cool, but like, it's like, how does war games end? They don't ask, like, I don't, at least I don't think they don't like ask Matthew Broderick. It's like, Hey, you want to like come and be a consultant for us now? Like, no, like, so I wasn't really even thinking about cybersecurity. And in fact, I just wanted like a job. And it just so happened that like I had moved back because I've been, my AmeriCorps service was in Alaska, right? So I was in Alaska for like, and then I stayed for a little while because I was being stubborn. So I was there for like three years, right? And then I came back and my family was living in Columbia, Maryland at the time, which it's something of a cybersecurity hub on the East Coast because of its relative you know, proximity to the NSA. Uh, but I, I was not even thinking about that. Like I was applying everywhere after I came back. You know, I had originally tried to like have a job to come back to, but eventually like I just didn't want to be in Alaska anymore. So I moved back and I was applying everywhere. And like, I, you know, I, I interviewed with like Amazon back then and in various different other companies. And then I just got a, uh, honestly, I got like a random like call from somebody who said they had seen my resume on dice, right. Which I didn't even like remember posting. And he gave me the address and I'm like, you're like, <laughs> I can almost see you from here. Like, they just <laughs> happened to be right around the corner. And it was this cybersecurity company, you know, source fire. I ended up being there for like eight years. I wouldn't say I was interested in the space. Like, I mean, certainly once I got back into it, you know, some of that earlier, those earlier interests since I mean, I've always, it made me, it's once again, it was like when I decided to get the degree, I realized it's what I should have been doing, but only in retrospect, right? It wasn't something that drove me. Like I got in, I got back in, you know, kind of into the cybersecurity thing. And then I was like, you know, I have always kind of liked to like push boundaries and mess with stuff and find out the spaces between things and, 
I'm actually a pretty good fit for this industry. That is interesting, right? Like that was the job that somehow fate or something kind of put in front of you. But you you obviously ended up having an interest in that stuff. And, and it, you've made a, at least a, a career over the last, what, that was eight years. Now you're where you're at now for like three or something like that. I mean, so no, I, I mean, like I, I, I came back in um, at the very, very tail end of 2007. So like 2008. So like, you know, 12 years. Yeah, I've been doing this for 12 years. I got a couple of questions there, but I want to get back to the, the conversation you're having about the relationships that you were, you were forming, because I find that it's really who you know, as much as what you know, that helps land those jobs. So these relationships that you were kind of cultivating, were they just at the work? Were they on the bulletin boards or were you going to meetups? Like if somebody new right now is, is looking to break into this industry and, or any industry, based on your experience and what you know now, right, 2020, what could you have done 12 years ago maybe to have accelerated that? Or what would you have done differently? Or you think you did everything right? From my perspective, sometimes I take, I, I, I'm, I'm often inclined to, to like take a little bit of umbrage or pause with the phrase this is like with it's not what you know it's who you know it is true i mean i think strictly that your social connections are exceptionally important to your career development especially in like setting up like in having that safety net but it's i i, w- I want to discourage the because for me it wasn't so much who i knew but how i knew everybody and my approach to like just I'm, I'm, as you know, and as anybody who's met me know, knows I'm like a compulsive oversharer and will very quickly tell you things that might make you like uncomfortable <laughs> about my personal life. And I think that that approach has served me really well, like making friends kind of quickly. Yeah. But how did you do that? This, this is what I want to talk about, right? Cause you said my approach to making friends, my pro, like, what is that approach? Can you Share it in a way that maybe people that are having pro- trouble with that, right? Because it's such a, such an important thing. Is it just you being you? Is there any kind of roadmap to that? I'm sorry, and I, I don't want to come off as if I think that I'm anything special, um, which I'm not. It's just that different people have a different kind of mix of characteristics. So, like, I mean, I guess I would probably just before I begin, I would like discourage people from thinking of of other people as like a, a means to an end because like i think that for many people hearing that phrase they're like okay well like i have to like cultivate this people resource and i need in my quiver kind of like x y and z number of people in x y and z number of positions and i i find that i don't know to me that thinking is is kind of cold and antithetical to you know what it you know the real enterprise of making friends but having said that i have a, a kind of outgoing and gregarious nature and that not everybody is like that. Everybody's different. So I guess insofar as you can be, I would say that it's really important to be like curious about other people, you know, to make them feel like, and to genuinely be interested in them because so much of the time, you know, we're used to going through life and just kind of being background to 
everybody else is like everybody likes to tell themselves a story about their narrative of their life and other people are just characters in it so i guess like anything that you can do to like dispel that notion and make somebody feel like you know they're interesting and important is good and you know ideally of course to mean it all right so then i think that leads to maybe i want to talk a little bit in the time we have left about the community work you do because you're very strong technically. You've had a career in the cybersecurity. The people you've met along the way and, the, and fate kind of bringing you here. You're a Google developer expert in the Go programming language. And you run the Baltimore or you're co-organizer with the Baltimore Go meetup, which for me is one of the best Go meetups out of the group of meetups. There really is. And if anybody listening to this, uh, you're still doing them virtually, right? You're not yeah, physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you're looking for a fantastic monthly meetup where everybody is, it's a still fairly small group, everybody's really welcoming. I like popping into the Baltimore meetup uh, every once in a while, and I'm really happy that things have kind of gone virtual, though I'll be sad when you're physically meeting again, I can't be a part of it. But that being said, do you think that meetups is a way for people who are even, let's say, introverted or have a hard time connecting with people. Do you think the meetup, especially the meetup environment that you're holding, is a good idea? And, and maybe talk about what somebody should be looking at for meetups. I don't know. I, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know where I'm going. Yeah, I do. So I think one of the most important gifts that I have been given, and again, can't stress enough, right place, right time kind of situation, was when, I, I want to say it was Dave, Cheney, who approached me and said, we are thinking about setting up this thing kind of inspired by the like buddy system at RubyCon for GopherCon. And I thought you would be a good person to like take that initiative on, right? That was, that's been a really good thing for me because first of all, being challenged to kind of you know, be welcoming to a wide variety of as wide variety of people as possible. Let me interrupt you for a second, just so everyone else. This is the 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 Gopher Guides program, right? That GopherCon runs. Yeah, GopherCon Guides. I think like like the name is probably going to need to change because you know there's there's a Gopher Guides business now. But yes, oh, yes. that's true, that's true. Yeah. But I just just to have context. Yes, the idea was that you were. People who were first time or felt like they needed help socializing, you were bringing people together and introducing them to, to buddies and things like. Yeah, just just to set the stage. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, and and we can talk about that too. Uh, but I I think that by being asked to do that kind of thing, I got to learn a lot about, you know, what welcoming really even is, right? So for like people who are introverted, like this stuff is hard for them. And I don't think I would be considered an introvert under most circumstances, but like I do actually have a tremendous amount of social anxiety, uh, especially under certain circumstances. And like it, that I think plus being that kind of like loner kind of off to the side kid in high school to a, a large degree has at least helped me kind of bridge a gap between people who are more introverted. I think for those people, especially, I think meetups can be good. Meetups are always good because we've already talked about like the social aspect of really any discipline is important. 
And engaging in that is better than not. But like also you can't just expect somebody who is much more introverted by nature to show up to one of these things and just like get along. Like you, you have to work. There has to be work at it. So it's like I wouldn't say so much to them. I mean, of course, to them, you know, be open to to new experiences. But like, you know, that's like telling somebody to like another favorite food, right, or change something fundamental about themselves. I think it's more the advice that I would give would be more towards the people who are like running the meetups and participating in them to like kind of learn to recognize or really just to be proactive in your inclusion of people, right? It's that's I think one of the best things. I mean, even introverted people, I have found like you get them going and you kind of bridge that initial barrier gap, whatever, then things are, are much, much better. But again, it's like that's about, you know, you have to be genuine. You have to kind of show a curiosity about them, you know, because just you have to go into it thinking, you know, OK, I'm the organizer. Like my job is to make people feel welcoming. Everybody is a story unto themselves that I don't know. And everybody has their interests. Let's kind of forge some connection there. And you got to you have to work at it. It's work like you have to be proactive. It's why I love the Orlando meetup, because when I come into these particular meetups, it feels more like a family than anything else. And everybody, there are people in both these meetups that never show themselves. They just like sitting on the sidelines, but they're there. And even if they're there every, every time, you create this family environment. And for me right now, I don't know when, when young people, when people new in their career are saying, I, I don't know how to get out there. I don't know how to meet people because I think it's important to be out there at some level to meet people, especially if you're looking for work. Like the, the connections you make and the people you meet are, are just opportunities that, and I might not have the opportunity, but I know somebody who does, right? So for me, meetups is a critical, I tell or suggest to people all the time, look for a local meetup, look for a meetup in your space, look for a meetup where maybe you can find some common people or some some commonality and, and then start forging those relationships. I don't know any other way to do that. I mean, conferences at some point were th- a part of that, but what else is there really? That's how it's always been. I mean, I mean, even before we had, you know, we called them meetups. There was like your 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 lug, your Linux users group or your ham radio group or your your whatever. I think though, sticking on introverted people for a minute because I think they represent kind of the more extreme case of like how difficult it is to sort of forge those social connections, right? It's like hard enough for some of these people you're talking about. They're like, what do I do? It's harder still when they're like, and I don't know how to do it if I get it, right? Like, or I just don't like it or it makes me uncomfortable or whatever. So focusing on them a little bit, I think again, that yes, it is all very well and good to be like, yes, you need to go to meetups. You need to you know go to conferences. But just that alone is not going to be enough for somebody who's already kind of struggling with forging those social connections, right? I think, again, if I had advice to give, it would be to all of my fellow like extroverted people, you know, hey, do you like talk? Do you like talking at meetups? Do you think you're funny? Do you like to make friends? Do you like to be the social fixture at the meetup? If so, maybe take upon yourself the responsibility of being the kind of outreach person, like take your extroversion 
and invert its focus a little bit from you being in a, in the spotlight. And I know it's hard because it's hard for me, <laughs> but like invert that a little bit and kind of focus it on being approachable. And I'm not, and I don't mean to say approach other people just all the time be like, Hey, what's going on? Who are you? Like that can be also a little aggressive. I mean, it's important to kind of like you, you talk about it like a family, right? Some people are on the periphery of a family. Some people are, you know, whatever, but you always, you know, there's always somebody in the family who, I mean, ideally he like goes up and knocks on the door and it's like, Hey, you know, you want to come down for dinner. Okay. You know, so I would challenge people who are a little more outgoing to kind of be the champions of inclusion at their groups and at their meetups and stuff like that. And, and like be approachable. And I think anybody that's listening to this podcast, if you are in these social environments and you see somebody who's kind of by themselves, right? I mean, it was huge courage for them to come out alone to that event. And when I see people that are by themselves, whether it was at a conference, uh, you know, usually at a conference, I will walk up and start a conversation and just ask them how they think the conference is going or how they think the event is going. And then you'll get feedback fairly quickly if they want to talk or not. And you're talking about a, a two to five minute conversation. This isn't all day, right? Because that would be creepy. But a lot of times you you find out a little bit about them and you know, you know what, this person should talk to Andy. This person should talk to because there's there's something in common there. And then that introduction could be a longer meeting, could be a longer kind of friendship, right? And I do that a lot because I've been in those situations. I've been at conferences. I don't know anybody, right? They just happen to want to talk about Go in this conference. And it's a C++ conference. And you're completely by yourself, right? And it's not fun. So for anybody listening to this, I mean, really appreciate if somebody new comes to the meetup, somebody new shows up and they're alone. Like there was a huge amount of courage. This is somebody really trying and just you saying hi alone could just make the difference between the experience that they have there or not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of the program that you put together there about trying to be more proactive about that for people who, who know they're going to need it. Right. Yeah, and I, it's, it's I a mixture that. between that kind of like, like you're talking about that like active approach, which is relatively easy to do if you get the right people and you give them maybe a little bit of training and coaching in like how to how to do that. But a lot of the time, the people you get volunteer for that kind of thing already know. But the other side of it too is, and this is the thing that I'm always thinking about, is like the, but so how do you make it so you're more approachable? How do you make it so that like interacting with you is less intimidating, feels like less of a struggle for somebody who kind of struggles with that. And the, the kind of combination and interplay between those two factors is, I think, what's like really, really important about various different types of inclusion, right? So maybe this is something that uh, you as a GDE and GoBridge maybe can find some time to think about because I think with the experience you have, there, there's something here that there needs to be another discussion. But we only have five minutes left. So the last thing I want to kind of sum up is we've talked a little bit about your childhood and your career and where you are in your cybersecurity space. We've talked about the community work. But I'm curious, where would uh, Andy like to see himself three to five years out? Like, are you looking at like 
staying in the same space? Or do you have some other interests? Are you looking to retire like I am? <laughs> oh, wow. All that stuff, actually, in, in one measure or another. Like, I, 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 where I'm right now is I'm interested in technical leadership a bit more, not so much managerial work, managerial work, although, you know, it might be one of those situations where I just at some point wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, I should be doing that. But like where I'm, what I, what I say that I'm interested in right now, I want to do more stuff in that kind of classical computer science space when I can. And I try and carve off time for that. But I, I imagine myself maybe doing more technical leadership stuff. I always tell people that like my retirement goal is just like working in science or research but like, you know, just being the gray beard that's like, you know, in like the Grateful Dead shirt or whatever and drives like, you know, rovers around. I, one of my friends who works at Goddard used to tell this story about this guy who was just like so good at like orbital mechanics and stuff like that was his like his thing that he would he would change. He would tweak burn rates and stuff like that so that like major mission milestones would happen on people's birthdays. Right. Which is just like so that's I mean, like that's so cute and like so technical, but like I would love to someday just be in that, you know, that guy in that room fixing rovers or spaceships or something like that. I think that would be kind of fun. But I I, I, you know, I don't know. All right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking to uh, move to Huntsville, Alabama at some point. So I'll meet some people working on the Mars projects and, and NASA and get your resume over there. I know you will. <laughs> All right. So our hour is up. Andy, I, thank you so much for sharing so much about you and your career and the community work. And I think there's a lot of value in people hearing that. And I think you're an inspiration. You're going to be an inspiration to a lot of people as well, giving them the confidence and, and, and just making them feel like, you know what, I'm in the same kind of space maybe Andy is right now, but, but look at where Andy got. So, you know, you, you can do that too. So thank you so much for giving, giving us an hour today. Yeah, anytime. And anybody who's like listening, like, you know, you can reach out to me. I'm on the go for Slack uh, anytime. That's my bag. <laughs> All right, so we'll make sure your Twitter account and Slack stuff is on the uh, show notes for that. So that's cool. All right. Well, this is Bill Kennedy with the Arden Labs podcast. We just finished a, a, an amazing hour with Andy Walker and uh, hope to have you back with us soon. Thanks. Thank you. Anytime.